good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is George Gaskell. I'm a pro-director here, and it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome you, and particularly our guests, to this uh, exciting session. I'm sure some of you will have not been invited to the Mansion House last evening, so this is the LSE's alternative, where we have the Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer. And uh, I would also like to introduce Steve Richards, who uh, is the senior political commentator on my daily newspaper, and it's been a delight to talk to him for 20 minutes before this lecture to put a face to somebody's writings on politics that I've enjoyed over the last, I don't know, seven years. So I'm going to uh, welcome formally Ed Balls, the Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer. This is his first major lecture. This is not a series of sound bites, it's a serious uh, lecture on economic affairs, so those of you who booked your notepads can uh, take copious uh, uh, notes and uh, students, very useful for the political science uh, examinations. Uh, so we're delighted that you chose to come to the LSE for this first important lecture, and we do hope we will see you again in the near future. And as I said, I'm also delighted to welcome Steve Richards, who will be chairing this session and uh, taking questions from the press and the audience uh, in the Q&A session after Ed has spoken. Thank so, you, Thank you. George, thanks very much indeed. Uh, well, uh, as uh, George was saying, the format is very clear. We'll hear from Ed Balls, and then there will be a chance for questions. Um, so as things are pretty tight time-wise, I think the best thing to do is say we had an interesting lecture from Ed Balls during the Labour leadership contest, uh, the Bloomberg speech, which in some ways brought that otherwise rather dull contest to life in many different ways. Um, so this is the second big lecture since then, and his first as Shadow Chancellor, Ed Balls. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Steve, and thank you to you all for coming. It's a pleasure to be here at the, um, the LSE to give my first speech on economics as, uh, uh, as Shadow Chancellor. So thank you to George and all the team for organising today. And um, for those of you who are here from the press and, and especially the, um, the, economics, the, the um, parliamentary sketch writers, you'll be relieved to know that I'm not going to do a lecture on economic theory uh, today. In my speech at the headquarters of Bloomberg last August, uh, I set out the lack of economic theory that I believe was underpinning George Osborne's economic strategy, as well as the large extent to which political calculations were already driving the new government's policy. And I want today to look at what happens when policymakers are confronted with a choice between politics and economics and the consequences of getting that choice wrong. In my view, throughout history, there have been pivotal moments when leaders have faced a choice between two opposite courses of action that have often been described as a fork in the road moment. But in peacetime politics or economics, such moments have tended to involve less of a clear-cut choice between two divergent paths and more of a gradual shift in one direction or another. If you take the decision to join the ERM in 1990, that wasn't the result of great minds sitting around a table one day weighing up the pros and cons. It was a product of years of deliberation and delay of persuasion and preparation through which a consensus was slowly built. And those who disagreed, like Alan Walters, were gradually isolated. And the decision not to join the euro in 2003, which was, which was 
which was heavily debated at the time, is also seen by many historians as preordained from the moment the five tests were set and responsibility for the assessment were agreed six years before. I'm not sure that's totally right because the circumstances at the time in 2003 were critical in determining the final decision not to join. It's certainly true, though, that many people believed the case to have been weak for some years beforehand, and, uh, and I would say hindsight has proved them to be right. But in contrast to those gradual shifts, it's all too rare in recent history to see a Chancellor face a fork in the road moment. German, German reunification 20 years ago this month was one such fork in the road moment. So was Winston Churchill's decision to rejoin the gold standard in 1925 at the dinner at number 11 Downing Street when John Maynard Keynes famously made but lost the argument against a return to gold. And I believe that, that another fork in the road moment took place a year ago when George Osborne entered the Treasury. Because whatever the bluster of the, the election campaign, whatever the private talks between his advisers and the Liberal Democrats, it could only have been when George Osborne arrived at, at, at his desk and examined the figures presented to him that, that he could properly assess the choice he faced. And there was a choice. On the one hand, to continue with Labour's economic plan, the emphasis on jobs and growth, while continuing a steady and balanced approach to halve the deficit in four years. Or, on the other hand, in my view, a political decision to eliminate the structural deficit in a parliament, to a parliamentary uh, timetable, a fiscal tightening of such scale and severity that it had to begin immediately. Of course, it is the right of a new government to change course. But while he may have been expected to have spent some weeks and months contemplating that decision, the fork in front of him, and consider the consequences of his decision. Instead, George Osborne moved very quickly, a headlong lunge down the path of rapid deficit reduction. Within two weeks of coming into office, George Osborne announced six billion of spending cuts. He cancelled the Child Trust Fund, the Youth Jobs Guarantee. A few weeks later, in fact, a year next Wednesday, it is, uh, in his first budget, George Osborne announced plans to take billions of pounds more out of the economy through a combination of deep spending cuts, but also new tax rises and benefits cuts. He said, rapid deficit reduction is the priority. There is no choice. The markets demand it. He said, the faster we cut, the better for confidence. He said, no alternative is possible. And he said, anyone who disagrees is a deficit denier. Shortly afterwards at Bloomberg, at the beginning of August, with the Labour Party, as Steve says, caught up in the leadership election, and the, uh, and the economic data looking up, George Osborne allowed himself to, I think, become, to become prematurely complacent. In that speech, he said he was, he was cautiously optimistic about the economic situation. And he highlighted that recent data and said, as the Bank of England confirmed last week, this is consistent with the kind of gradual recovery forecast by the Office for Budget Responsibility at the time of that June budget. It was even more striking when David Cameron claimed a few weeks later that the economy was out of the danger zone. But the figures they quoted at that time in support of their argument weren't the result of their policies. They were really taking credit for the actions taken by Alistair Darling and the Labour government some months before. Even now, George Osborne berates the media for not reporting that 377,000 net jobs have been created in the last 12 months. But what he doesn't say is that 69% of those jobs came 
in the six months before the spending review last autumn, and only 29%, less than a third, since the spending review in the last six months. And when I myself spoke at Bloomberg a few weeks later, I explained my concerns about the state of the economy and about the impact that George Osborne's decision was having on jobs and on growth. I was, uh, I have to say, remained deeply suspicious that he was using the imperative of, def uh, of deficit reduction as a convenient cover to drive through a rather ideological programme of cuts to public services and the welfare state. But since then, I've become more convinced that George, uh, that George Osborne's plan was primarily about electoral politics, uh, to have rapid tax rises uh, uh, and spending cuts chiefly to fit a political timetable, to get the pain over early, to make sure Labour takes the blame for that blame, to use Liberal Democrats as the human shield for those cuts, and then hoping to store up a Tory war chest, bolstered now it seems by the quick sale of Northern Rock, to cut income taxes before the election. In my Bloomberg response last August, I argued that, of course, getting the deficit down is necessary and important, but going too fast for political reasons risks killing off the recovery, crushing confidence, perversely making it harder to get the deficit down. I recognised that the prevailing consensus was against me in making this argument, but also that, that economic history shows us that the contemporary political consensus in Britain about the right course for economic policy is often wrong. And I argued for a slower and more balanced approach to deficit reduction, which only kicks in once the recovery is secured. As for which of those two Bloomberg speeches last August was right, I think it's still too early to say. But it's not too soon to continue the debate. And today I'm going to argue that the accumulating evidence shows that George Osborne's political gamble is taking our economy down the wrong path at huge cost to families and businesses, but that it's not too late for him to change course. I don't doubt that 12 months on, George Osborne will, in his private moments behind the door of number 11, be asking himself, did I choose the right path? How will history judge me? Traditionally, every outgoing Chancellor chooses a picture to hang on the staircase leading up to the Chancellor's state rooms in number 11. In the earliest days, the Chancellors chose simple ink portraits or caricatures of themselves, but at some point over the last century, Chancellors began choosing cartoons that they believe best sums up their time in office. So George Osborne will have seen the Nigel Lawson choice of cartoon for The Economist in February 1988. With the economy booming in the cartoon, Nigel Lawson is depicted as a fisherman sitting on the bank and resting contentedly against a mountain of fish as he feels yet another tug on his line. And of course, a month later, after that cartoon, Nigel Lawson delivered a budget proclaiming that the economy was at its strongest since the war and provided a final flourish of a 2 cut in income tax for middle-income earners. Of course, things didn't quite turn out as Nigel Lawson planned. The Chancellor will also have seen the Nicholas Garland cartoon hanging on the number 11 staircase chosen by Norman Lamont. In that cartoon, Lamont, the gardener, is smiling in the sunshine, bending down to water the green shoots of recovery. But behind him, a tornado is gathering. And in the swirling darkness, a farmer is sharpening his scythe to cut down the green shoots. And on the scythe, it says, public sector deficit. So the question is, as George Osborne walks up and down those stairs, what lesson does he draw from those cartoons? 
Quite possibly, he convinces himself that the sole threat to his political dream of emulating Lawson by cutting income tax before the election is that public sector deficit. But does he conclude from the Lamont cartoon that it is his deficit reduction plan which is the biggest threat? Or does he draw what I think is the wrong economic lesson, that it is the deficit itself that is stifling the recovery, and that if he doesn't take the political decision to roll back the state, there'll be no room for the private sector jobs and investment which he's relying on to ride to his rescue. In my view, only that latter interpretation explains why in March he now uh, he delivered what, now the dust has settled, must be considered a do-nothing budget this year. The budget of a Chancellor who had made up his mind last May, whose political course is fixed and who will not be blown off course by economic fact or logic. In April, a month after this, um, this March's budget, George Osborne told the Cabinet that the economy was roughly in the right place. And this week marks a year on from the first ever independent forecast from the OBR. We can now compare the emergency forecast of a year ago compared to those published more recently by the OBR. A year ago, the OBR forecast growth in 2011 of 2.6%. They now predict just 1.7%. And even that three times downgraded figure is already looking optimistic compared to lower forecasts from the OECD, the IMF, the National Institute and the British Chambers of Commerce. Unemployment for the next four years has been revised up. Inflation has been revised up from 1.6% to 4.2% by the end of this year. And the result of this slower growth, higher unemployment and higher inflation is that the government is now set to borrow £46 billion more than was forecast at the time of the autumn spending review. So that, that definitely wasn't part of the script a year ago. So the question is, what's gone wrong? The first sign that things were, weren't going to plan came in the autumn, just after David Cameron's claim that we were out of the danger zone. Unemployment started rising in September, reached a 16-year high in December. Surveys also showed the biggest fall in consumer confidence for nearly 20 years. But it was in January that alarm bells started to ring when the GDP figures for the fourth quarter of last year showed that the UK contracted by 0.5%. To, uh, to begin with, George Osborne famously tried to blame the snow, but of course it snowed in America, Germany and France as well, and they posted strong growth. Indeed, the only other European countries with falling output at the end of last year were Denmark, Ireland, Greece and Portugal. And uh, Greece and Portugal don't get much snow even in the winter. Since then, the economic figures have pointed in different directions. Last Friday, bad news on manufacturing output. Yesterday, welcome better news on unemployment. Today, this morning, a fall in retail sales, the biggest fall for, um, for well over a year. Overall, the evidence, I believe, has mounted that things are certainly not going according to plan. George Osborne has since developed a new weather line, which we heard last night at the Mansion House, when he blamed what he called global headwinds. Of course, there are factors outside the Chancellor's control, like rising oil or food prices, the difficulties in the Eurozone, the earthquake in um, Japan, all of which have an impact around the world, including in Britain. That is why prudent Chancellors always have to choose to be vigilant and to be cautious rather than complacent. I have to say there was a certain irony in George Osborne and David Cameron blaming the, gold, the global economy now, given how often in the last three years they insisted the worldwide recession was made here in Britain. But the fact is that the UK is doing badly compared to other countries affected by those same global headwinds. 
If you look at growth in the EU in the last six months compared to the previous six months, we've gone from the top end of economic growth to fourth from bottom, with, with only Denmark, Greece and Portugal now growing more slowly than Britain. And while policymakers in the US are worried that their recovery is slowing, the US has still grown by 1.2% in the, in the last six months compared to Britain's zero. And to many leading economic commentators, and also to recent winners of the Nobel Prize for Economics like Chris Pissaridis, Paul Krugman, Joe Stiglitz, this poor economic performance to economists doesn't come as a surprise. The scale of the fiscal hit to demand and growth in Britain this year is unprecedented. And it's happening at a time when interest rates are already very low and can't be cut, and when other countries are also trying to cut their deficits at the same time. It's this combination of factors which, which suggests that the, um, the impact of this fiscal contraction on economic growth in Britain, what economists call fiscal multipliers, will be considerably more severe than even the, the OBR's downgraded forecast suggests. What has surprised observers is how, even before the real impact begins, expectations of tax rises and spending cuts to come are already weakening confidence in deferring spending. Confidence will have been hit too by the very public debate about when interest rates will have to rise, when mortgage rates will have to rise in part of a response to the global headwinds, but also to, I think, the mistaken decision to raise VAT in January, which has pushed up inflation here in Britain more than other countries. And while it isn't surprising that those who are backing George Osborne are reaffirming their support, even they're getting worried. The CBI has supported George Osborne, but the outgoing Director General Richard Lambert warned in January it's not enough just to slam on the spending brakes. He said measures that cut spending but kill demand would actually make matters worse. The FT's editorial after the first quarters of growth provided some solace to George Osborne. They said this newspaper supported George Osborne, the Chancellor, in his decision to reduce the structural deficit faster than his predecessor planned. But the sting in the, uh, in the tail was, but this does not amount, the FT said, to unqualified support for tightening in each and every circumstance. The Deputy Secretary General of the OECD, its Chief Economist, told the Times last month, we see merit in slowing the pace of fiscal consolidation if there is not good news on the growth front. The, the, the Daily Telegraph said in a recent leader that these growth figures should be giving George Osborne sleepless nights. The Independent has talked about the chance of fending off doubts and jitters from Cabinet colleagues. As we saw in The Observer a week or so ago, some of the economists who supported his plan in the Sunday Times last year are now changing their minds. And most recently, the IMF, while sticking to its support, said there are significant risks to growth, inflation and unemployment. And George Osborne and David Cameron have clearly been paying attention because while there's no change in the policy yet, there is a change in the rhetoric. They now say the economy is choppy, but it doesn't really matter if growth is slower, so long as we have growth. They say changing course would be a disaster for our credibility, so there's really no choice but to press on regardless. And they say, of course, Labour would do the same if we were in power. There's no alternative. And in the rest of this lecture, I want to look at each of those three claims. First of all, does it matter? It's easy for politicians to convince themselves that short-term trends don't matter as long as they believe the long-term prize remains within their grasp and with the most recent quarter's growth rate positive again, albeit only making the contraction up of the previous quarter, George Oswald must be tempted to try to batten down the hatches, to rely upon his supporters, to talk him up, to try to pin the blame on Labour, I think by blatantly rewriting history, and hope 
that everybody forgets the damage done along the way. But as well as being hugely respons uh, 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 irresponsible, this strategy misses the point entirely. I've been consistent in saying that a double-dip recession is not the most likely outcome. Although over the last six months, we've, uh, we've missed it by barely a whisker. But the test for the economy is not whether we avoid a double-tip recession or not, or whether unemployment rises or falls in any particular quarter. It's how much pain is inflicted along the way in terms of lost growth and jobs. It's not fluctuating quarterly growth rates which hurt. It's the ground we've lost over the past year and continue to lose every day with slower growth. The fact is, while America, Germany and France have recovered to their pre-crisis levels of output, we in Britain are still 4% below. Compared to the OBR's forecast before George Osborne's first budget, their latest forecasts imply that by the end of next year, we will be £5.6 billion worse off as a country. That's equivalent to £300 for every family. If UK growth came in 0.5% below trend in every year of this parliament, then we would be, um, as a country, £58 billion worse off by 2015. That's £3,300 worse off for every family. And the OBR said we should expect unemployment to be up to 200,000 higher over the coming years that expected just a few months ago. So the test for the Treasury isn't just whether they can eventually post better growth rates. We all know in the end the economy will return to stronger growth. It's whether they can make up this lost growth in jobs and in living standards. On the Today programme a few months ago, um, Evan Davis uh, put to me the view that with the underlying trend growth rate of the economy fixed, whether tax rises and spending cuts come now or later is really only a matter of timing, that the overall amount of the structural deficit will need to be reduced or remain the same, that given the rate of growth, the overall amount um, of spending cuts or tax rises will remain the same. And so, given that it's just a matter of pain now or pain later, why not get the pain out of the way quickly? But, and this is the absolutely crucial point, the trend growth rate of the economy isn't fixed. It's not just about growth postponed versus pain deferred. Months or years of slower growth aren't something that will be quickly repaired. It risks leaving a permanent dent in our nation's prosperity relative to how prosperous we might have been and how prosperous we are relative to other countries. Because economic history teaches us that, economists, that, that economies don't simply bounce back to where they would have been. Who can now doubt the depth of the recession of the early 80s had permanent effects in Britain? permanent effects through manufacturing output and jobs and companies lost never to return, uh, of small businesses going bankrupt, losing skills, ideas, network and potential never to return, capital investment plans first postponed, eventually dropped and never resurrected. And most importantly, adults and young people out of work for months, which then turned to years and left a permanent scarring effect on their skills, their health, their ability and willingness to work again. Just think how many people in this room would feel confident about their job prospects if you've been out of work for over a year and you have to compete against other candidates with an unbroken employment record. So the claim that the current debate about the pace of cuts is simply about deferring pain misses the point. The risk is that we wreak long-term damage as well as short-term damage to the British economy, that we get into a vicious cycle of permanently lower investment, lower income and lower employment, which in turn requires bigger tax increases or deeper spending cuts to get the deficit down. And at a time when right across the country people are suffering, when already life is tough for people who are unemployed 
and we need to help those people back into work. At a time when we've got squeezes on living standards, flat wages, a fear of unemployment, higher fuel and, few, uh, and food prices, growing debt, um, people are worried about their futures, those of their children, for the first time. As Ed Miliband said, this is a threat to the promise of Britain, the promise that the next generation will not be better off um, than the last. And it's difficult, too, for pensioners on fixed incomes, too, given what's happening to inflation. So it does matter. And there's a further reason why it matters. We all know the financial crisis exposed the vulnerability of banks, the over-reliance of our economy on, um, on tax receipts from financial services. But it also accelerated the rise of India and China as our competitors, not just in low-cost manufacturing, but in top-class design and education. We can't afford to be left behind. We do need to do that rebuilding. We do need to reward investment in sustainable growth for the long term. We need a modern industrial policy that provides incentives for technology and innovation. We must make sure every company takes their responsibility seriously to get every employee the chance to upskill. A shadow business secretary, John Denham, has argued, while the conservative liberal notion that support for market-led growth means that the ideal state is one where the government does as little as possible. In truth, markets are inevitably and unavoidably shaped by both what governments do and what government doesn't do. We were told in the budget we'd have a big bang strategy for growth. In the end, it was mainly backtracking on large-scale industrial pro uh, projects, infrastructure projects, the abolition of the RDAs, the scrapping of skills programmes. But the truth is, the longer we spend with no or slower growth, the longer the road to recovery, the greater the pain that will have to be endured, and the further we will fall behind. So the answer to the first question, yes, absolutely, this current economic underperformance really matters. The second claim George Oswald now makes is that however bad things get, it would be disastrous to change course. This is really the crux of the new argument in recent weeks, as well as the reason why the Chancellor looked so satisfied when he stood with the IMF at the press conference last week. Last autumn, the Conservative-led government said, we don't need an alternative. But the argument is now that there isn't an alternative anyway. There couldn't be an alternative. When news first broke that George Osborne's plan had sent the economy to negative growth, he said, there is no question of changing a fiscal plan that has established international credibility on the back of one very cold month. That would plunge Britain back into financial crisis. We will not be blown off course by bad weather. And he told the politics show a few days later, if on Monday morning I went to Parliament and got up at the dispatch box and said I am abandoning the deficit reduction plan that Britain set out last year, what do you think the reaction would be, he said. I mean, within minutes, Britain would be in financial turmoil. Now I'm not prepared to let that happen. But in my experience, maintaining credibility and market confidence involves more than just talking tough. And I think there's three tests for a credible economic plan, a credible monetary policy plan, a credible fiscal policy plan. First, you've got to have transparent, clear, medium-term goals. Second, the plan has got to command sufficient political support to be implemented. But thirdly, it's also got to work, which means, crucially, that the goals have got to be realistic and achievable, the plan's got to build a track record of delivering results, and the policy has to be flexible enough to deal with unforeseen events along the way. And I think those were the three tests that Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling were trying to meet back in um, 2008 and 9 in response to the, the financial crisis. They had a plan to halve the deficit in four years. Political support was secured. In fact, it was legislated for. It's no secret that back in 2009, I thought that even this plan was too fast. But the early signs in 2010 were that it was working. 
The economy was growing strongly, unemployment was falling, borrowing came in over £20 billion lower than planned, which meant we had the flexibility to slow the pace of spending cuts or tax rises while still keeping on course for the medium-term goal. So all three tests for a credible plan were being met. Then came the general election. I have no principal objection at all to a new government wanting to put in place their own plan, a tougher plan. It's exactly what we did in 1997 when we came into government. But it really is absolute nonsense to say that had to be done because the markets were demanding it or the governor of the Bank of England was demanding it or that it was the only way to make our fiscal policy credible. George Oswald now claims that, like Greece, at that point we were on the brink of bankruptcy. That must be the first time a British Chancellor has ever looked, not to America or Germany or France, but to Greece or Portugal or Ireland for economic insights. But while politically convenient, it just shows a complete lack of understanding, not just about market credibility, but also how the Eurozone works and our history too. The truth is that unlike Britain, those countries were locked into the Eurozone, where they have no exchange rate flexibility. They're stuck with the same rising interest rates that um, are right for countries like Germany. Furthermore, their structure of debts bears no comparison whatever to Britain. We have the longest term bonds of any country, which means we need to raise much less every year from the markets. We're not subject to those short-term shifts in mood in any way like the same way. But also, while Greece was descending into economic turmoil, the UK was recovering. Our tax rises and spending cuts had been pre-announced. We were overachieving on a deficit reduction plan, which was entirely in line with the G20 commitment, and our long-term interest rates were already at historic lows. Historians will debate now whether Labour would have been better off conducting a full spending review before fighting the 2010 general election. It would certainly have allowed more detail to be set out about spending cuts, as well as which tax rises would have to rise and which we could guarantee not to rise. But I don't for one moment think that had any impact on macroeconomic credibility with the markets. The Darning plan was tough. It was widely acknowledged to be so, as the term structure of interest rates at that time was already demonstrating. Gilt yields had started falling well before the election, and they actually were falling during a time when the opinion polls were narrowing in the run-up to the election in what was clearly going to be an increasingly close general election. And while further decisions were going to have to be made after the election, of course, what we'd already set out went way beyond what other countries had set out at the time. The fact is, in my view, this is a blatant attempt to rewrite history to suit a political purpose. In my view, that decision to make the need for a much accelerated deficit plan a matter of credibility was entirely political. It was a necessary smokescreen for David Laws and Nick Clegg to explain their complete economic policy vault fast to worried Liberal Democrat MPs and supporters. But, whether or not you agree with me, the fact is, George Osborne passed the first two tests. He had a clear plan, tougher than ours, and he also had political support secured in the coalition. But as I said, the third test is, does it work? And that is the comparison between Britain, Greece, Portugal and Ireland, which is really the most important. George Osborne's logic is that if Greece, Ireland and Portugal had adopted his approach, they would not be facing such a severe and deepening crisis. The problem is that they did adopt his approach. In fact, the Portuguese Chancellor went one better and introduced two VAT rises, not one VAT rise in the last year. But what they and Ireland and Greece have all discovered, just like Argentina and Brazil and Turkey before them, is that in the end, it doesn't matter how much you cut spending or how much you raise taxes, if you can't create jobs and growth, the debt and deficit problems get worse 
and market confidence falls further. My concern is that that is the risk now for the UK. If the economy isn't growing, there's fewer jobs, there's fewer people in work paying taxes, few taxes paid, more benefits claimed, that makes it harder to get the deficit down. And when you see output stagnant, when you see the Bank of England and virtually every other major organisation downgrading their growth forecasts, this isn't just bad news now. It actually makes it harder to get the deficit down. It undermines long-term credibility, investment and confidence. As the former Chief Economist at the Cabinet Office, now head of the National Institute, Jonathan Porter, said last weekend, you don't gain credibility by sticking to a strategy which isn't working. And that's why I and others have consistently argued that George Osborne at least needs to consider a plan B. The problem is, history has shown that politicians in Britain have regularly fallen into the trap of sticking stubbornly to their guns in the misguided belief that any deviation indicates weakness and in the false hope that things will turn out okay in the end. But if you do that, you just dig a deeper and deeper hole. I've already referred to Nigel Lawson and um, the build-up to the um, ERM, the problems with broad money targeting. Let's not forget, though, there were more than two years between the decision to enter the ERM and the fateful events of Black Wednesday. Nor that vitally, once the wrong decision had been taken, there was no retreating. Twenty years ago this month, John Major told the House of Commons it was right to enter the ERM a year ago. It is right for us to be members now. We are in the exchange rate mechanism. We are staying in it. That was the plan. It had clear cross-party support. It had support from the city too. Speaking to the New York Times in November 1991, the respected chief economist of Salomon Brothers said there is no indication of currency misalignment in Europe. And he said for Britain to give in to realignment pressures would be neither beneficial for the stability of the ERM nor conducive to achieving its economic and currency goals. And the respected economist was John Lipsky, now at the IMF. He was far from being alone in the city. That was a widespread view in the city. But that consensus at the time was right, turned out to be not right. Political support crumbled because credibility collapsed. In the end, the pound was withdrawn. I was at the FT uh, at the time as a leader writer, not as close as to events as David Cameron, who was Norman Lamont's special advisor. But he will remember, as I do, the insistent and increasingly shield jawboning from a defiant chancellor who could not acknowledge that continued ERM membership was making the situation worse. At the end of August 1992, three weeks before Black Wednesday, Norman Lamont summoned reporters to the Treasury at 8am and declared there are going to be no devaluations, no leaving the ERM. We are absolutely committed to the ERM. It is at the centre of our policy. We are going to maintain sterling's parity and we will do whatever is necessary and I hope there is no doubt about that at all. So, will history repeat itself? Can George Osborne change course if he wants? Back then, the pound was constrained by a fixed exchange rate system. Announcing the UK would leave the RM would have led to market chaos, even though John Major and Norman Lamont could see their credibility ebbing away as the policy wasn't working, it was very hard to change course. Had we joined the euro, there would have been an even greater constraint on policy autonomy. But neither constraint exists now. Objectives for monetary and fiscal policy now lie squarely in the Chancellor's gift. 
And as I argued back in 97 when we were making the case for bank independent, it is vital for a country like Britain to have that constrained discretion. By which I mean you need clear, transparent, achievable goals, but you must keep the flexibility to decide how to meet them over what period of time. That's why we had the inflation target, but also the open letter system, which allowed the banks to explain its actions when it wasn't meeting the target. That's why the fiscal objectives over the cycle um, allowed the automatic stabilisers to work to keep the economy growing. They were flexible through the cycle. The fundamental problem with George Osborne's deficit plan is he set a political goal to a political timetable, which defies economic logic. And the lesson of monetary policy and fiscal policy too, I think, over the last 20 years, is that changing course when things aren't working isn't knee-jerk. It actually doesn't damage credibility. The truth is it's the only way as a country to stay in control of your destiny and avert a crisis before it's forced upon you. And that's why it's because George Osborne had from the beginning the flexibility and the discretion to set a new incredible course that personally I find it so frustrating that he's chosen to box himself in so hard and to ignore the mounting evidence by, by stubbornly sticking to his guns, making the major Lamont ERM mistake all over again. Every time he says, I can't change course, he makes it harder to do so and increases the pain of lost jobs and lost growth. As I argued last, thing to, uh, last week, the cautious thing to do is not to plough on and simply hope for the best. The cautious thing is to act and to act now before more ground is lost. And contrary to George Osborne's claims, there was a credible alternative a year ago. There is a credible alternative now, which brings me to that third argument. Politically, I can see why George, George Osborne says there's no other way. If his plan works... He can claim Labour failed to face up to the tough decisions. If it fails, he can claim Labour wouldn't have made any difference. On the first, I would say, setting out tough fiscal rules before 97, sticking to Tory spending plans for the first two years, delivering Bank of England independence, ensuring in 1999 all the proceeds from the 3G mobile licence sale were used to repay debt, uh, the resisting of UK membership of the euro, that shows that Labour, I, we're not people who shirk tough decisions. I'm making the case for a slower and more balanced approach, not because I'm a deficit denier, but actually it's the tough, it's the credible, and it's the cautious thing to do. And let's be clear, when a year ago we urged George Osborne to stick to a slower pace of deficit reduction, rule out a VAT rise, and take immediate action on jobs, it would have been really hard, it would have been really tough. As school secretary, I found a billion pounds worth of cuts. Uh, in policing, we identified a 12% cut to the budgets. We tightened rules on the incapacity benefit, the tax rises as well. But we were proceeding on spending with proper consultation, sensible um, decision-making, measured reductions, instead of the rush to cut that inevitably happens once you announce the policing budgets aren't being cut by 12%, but by 20% and front-end loaded. And I think that more sensible approach would have avoided some of the humiliating U-turns we've seen in recent weeks on forests, on school sport, on free school milk, the NHS sentencing policy. Sometimes, though, George Osborne tries to claim not that we wouldn't make the tough decisions. He says but Labour's spending cuts would be the same as his. But this is wrong on two grounds. Firstly, George Osborne himself, because he's trying to not half the deficit but eliminate the deficit, he boasted in his, year, in his budget a year ago he would have £40 billion more in tax rises and spending cuts. And secondly, because as I said earlier, the coalition ignores the fact that we were overachieving our deficit reduction plan by 21 billion, which would have given us some flexibility to scale back spending cuts, 
or tax rises if necessary, while staying the course to half the deficit. So when I'm asked in interviews, what should I, uh, what would I be doing differently to cut the deficit? The first thing I would say, in the words of um, the, the farmer to the passing driver, I wouldn't be starting from here. But also, I say we wouldn't have put VAT up in January. We wouldn't have scrapped the Future Jobs Fund for young people. And when I'm asked how much it would cost, I say, well, the better question is, how much is it costing us to lose the growth and jobs that George Osborne has sacrificed? But it's also the case, if I'm arguing that George Osborne should, on the basis of the evidence now, change his course, what should he do? His decision is, does he stick to his guns in the face of increasingly gloomy forecasts and data and hope for the best? Or does he accept the mounting evidence and move to a more balanced, a more sensible plan? I think our plan a year ago was more balanced because everybody paid their fair share, young and old, rich, uh, poor, bankers and the rest. There were fair, gradual spending cuts. The need to reduce the deficit was balanced with a proper plan for jobs and growth. It was cautious instead of a headlong lunge down a preordained path. I, that's why I believe it, it would have worked. I think that's what George Osborne should now do. He should radically slow the pace of deficit reduction. He should reopen the spending review and set out a steadier, fairer approach to spending cuts. He should take up the plan that Liam Byrne and I have set out to repeat the bank bonus tax, £2 billion, and use that now to spend £1.2 billion um, in the construction of 25,000 homes across the country, generating 20,000 jobs. He should establish a £600 million fund for youth jobs, which we think would get 90,000 young people into work straight away. He should boost the regional growth fund as well. I fear, though, George Osborne is not going to do that. He's going to bury his head in the sand. He's going to stick to his spending plans regardless. So I have another suggestion for the Chancellor. When the last Labour government temporarily cut VAT to 15% for 13 months, George Osborne dismissed it, saying people wouldn't even notice. And he may not have noticed. But at the end of each month, millions of families did see extra money in their pockets south, and, and thousands of businesses saw more money in their bottom line. And the IFS has said it was an effective stimulus. The economy received a much-needed injection which helped it to return to growth, led unemployment to fall and saw the deficit come in £20 billion lower. So my suggestion to George Osborne is that while he won't, I think, agree to reverse his mistaken VAT rise permanently, he should now reverse it temporarily, at least until the economy is growing strongly again. By putting more, people, uh, by putting more money directly into people's pockets, it would boost consumer spending for consumers who are feeling the squeeze from rising prices and rising taxes, especially pensioners and those on low and fixed incomes. The inevitable increase in consumer confidence would help what we now see from today's figures is a struggling retail sector where, 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 where retail sales actually fell in the latest month. It would also help to push down inflation and so reduce the risk of a recovery choking interest rate rise later this year and it would give our flatlining economy the jumpstart it so urgently needs, boost jobs and help us get the deficit down for the long term. I think the question is not the cost to George Osborne of paying for that temporary emergency tax cut, but the price our country will pay if he carries on regardless. Slowing down the pace of deficit reduction now with a temporary VAT cut would give the economy the jumpstart it urgently needs, boost jobs, and is a better way to get the deficit down for the long term. So, to the sketch writers, finally my conclusion. <laughs> this is it. The path that our economy is being taken down is the wrong one, as I think the evidence is showing. 
I think it could prove very damaging for, growth, for growth, for jobs, for public services, for living standard, for getting the deficit down, and for interest rates too. At the very least, it looks set to be a path of slower growth and higher uh, uh, unemployment than would have needed to be the case. There is an alternative. It is more credible than the current plan, not less. It isn't too late to change course, but George Osborne's got to decide to put the national interest first and to stop trying to score cheap points by blaming Labour. Of course, I'm not saying that we aren't without blame. I've been absolutely clear that we should have been tougher in regulating the banks and government. I do believe the Vickers Commission on Banking is a hugely important opportunity for Britain to get the future of banking regulation right and to lead the global debate. But trying to blame the deficit on Labour's supposed wasteful spending and profligacy, as the Conservative Party tried to do in this weekend in The Telegraph, won't work because it's based on a fiction. The fact is, before the global financial crisis, Britain had a lower deficit and lower national debt than we inherited in 1997. The 2000 spending review showed the budget was moving into structural surplus, even with our excess spending in Iraq and Afghanistan. It halved the growth of public spending while setting demanding efficiency targets. It, of course, we didn't spend every pound wisely, because no government ever does. But you can't blame the collapse of Lehman Brothers in New York on spending on the NHS or policing here in Britain. I don't believe blaming Labour is a viable economic or political strategy, nor do I think is waiting. Keeping your fingers crossed, stubbornly ignoring the economic evidence is no way to make economic policy. And in doing so, George Osborne risks joining the ranks of chancellors, finance ministers and economists who should have known better but allowed politics to trump economics. Back in January explaining why the ERM would succeed despite Britain's imminent slide into recession. The Salomon's chief economist, John Lipsky, said, there is so much political capital tied up in political and monetary union, it's hard to imagine any of the authorities giving up on their goals. By admitting the possibility of a shift in currencies as a policy option, it may lower their sense of commitment to, to irrevocably fix exchange rates. He might, all, uh, uh, he might equally have said, whatever you do, don't talk about a plan B. And today when I hear George Osborne refuse even to countenance a plan B, I don't believe this is economic judgment, it's a political gamble with the nation's economy from a Chancellor who, despite his responsibilities and sound economics, the protection of jobs and growth, has got a fixed political strategy. I spoke earlier about the staircase and number 11 Downing Street. There is another cartoon which I hope George Osborne has noticed, and it's the one chosen by John Major. Uh, by John Major. The cartoons by Trog drawn in April 1990, and it depicts the Chancellor, John Major, at one end of a boat, rowing towards the Chancellor, shout, the, uh, the ERM, sorry, the, the Chancellor, John Major, at the end of a boat, rowing towards the ERM, shouting, in, in, in. And from the riverbank, Nigel Lawson and the Governor of the Bank of England are cheering him on. And at the other end of the boat is Margaret Thatcher, desperately pulling in the opposite direction, shouting, out, out, out. From beginning to end, our ignominious experience of the ERM was a constant battle between politics and economics. And when you consider it took John Major more than 15 years to even choose that cartoon, you can see how deep the scars of that experience were. <laughs> but there are crucial differences between then and now. First, George Osborne's got a choice. He's not in the ERM or the Euro. Secondly, he can't fall back on the argument of that time that Labour supports his policies. There is a clear alternative. When I said as much in my Bloomberg speech last year, um, in the political world, it felt like the road less travelled. Today, there are a few more voices joining mine. 
George Osborne cannot say he's not been warned. We are on a path of slower growth, of higher unemployment than was forecast a year ago. He has a choice, but he's got to be prepared to start putting economics before politics. But it's not too late to change course. Thank you very much indeed for uh, delivering that lecture. I'll ask a couple Apologize of questions. Apologise to the um, guys in the middle. Sorry about that. All right. Okay. I'll ask a couple of questions and then we'll widen it out. We'll first um, uh, have a mini, mini kind of press conference. And if any journalists want to ask questions, we'll take a few of those. And then we've got until half 11 to widen it out uh, for questions elsewhere as well. If I could just ask a couple of questions really about the politics of all of this. Um, a general one and then a specific one on your proposal on... BAT, which was a new story this morning. Um, the general one, you acknowledge that at the moment you are arguing outside the consensus. You say the consensus on the ERM and other key moments is often proved to be wrong. But presumably you want to win an election. How do you win an election if you are arguing against a consensus which is broadly in favour of the Osborne economic strategy and broadly believes that the previous Labour government was, to some extent at least, culpable for what has happened. Well, look, the last Labour government was to some extent culpable because we, like regulators around the world, got the banking crisis wrong. That was at the heart of the problem. We can blame the irresponsibility of um, bankers, but it was also the failure of regulators around the world. And we've got to apologise for that and take that and, and, uh, and support um, tougher regulation for the future. My argument is that the, it is not against that argument for our culpability. It's the idea that it was actually driven by excessive public spending, which is politically convenient for George Osborne, but is not borne out, in my view, by the facts um, at all. The second thing is that, um, as you said, there have been times, particularly 1925, it is fascinating to go back and see the broad base of support for um, the decision to... Um, um, go into the gold standard in 1925, which was Churchill's decision. He agonised over it, but he's been pushed by the broad mass of the media and popular opinion. The Cunliffe Committee, the former governor of the Bank of England, had recommended it. Labour supported it, but it was a catastrophe. And it was a catastrophe such that um, Churchill lost the following election in 1929. Similarly, on the ERM, this policy in 1990 was supported by Labour and the TUC, as well as the Conservatives and the, the CBI, the truth was in the 1992 election, we were completely hamstrung because on the big question of the day, you know, unemployment heading towards three million, at that time the longest recession since the Second World War, Labour had no alternative because we were supporting the policy. That was a decision which had been made some time before. But of course we came as a country out of the ERM in September 1992. Credibility of the policy collapsed. People suffered very greatly and Labour went on to win the following election. So during the time when the consensus is against you, it is less comfortable to make the argument for the alternative. But history teaches you if you don't make the argument for the, the alternative, our country pays a much, much bigger price. And in the end, um, the politicians who didn't do what actually they thought they should be doing in their hearts to make the case of the alternative pay a pretty heavy price as well. So, you know... Um, yeah. OK. And, and just on the specific, the VAT cut that um, you trailed this morning on the news and so on, it's interesting in your speech you said, in a way, previewing George Osborne's political strategy that he is building up what you say could be a war chest for income tax 
cuts before the election, which would be quite a sort of potent uh, political strategy in some ways and will be a challenge for you when that moment comes. Just in that context, why did you opt for the VAT cut rather than, given that you're anticipating income tax cuts to be offered by George Osborne in the build-up to the next election? Why, why VAT now? Well, I mean, the, the political strategy, I think, is, um, is pretty classic 1979-1980. Um, you know, before the election, Margaret Thatcher ruled out doubling VAT, and then in 1979 it was raised from 8 to 15%. Um, a lot of pain was taken early. The plan was, um, obviously, to get to tax cuts by the next election. What happened in that 79-83 parliament is the economy did much worse than expected, and, uh, you know, but we had the Falklands War and we had um, Labour's longest suicide um, note. But um, that is in George Osborne's mind. Um, but as I said, credibility comes from whether it works. And if it doesn't work, you already he's had to admit borrowing is going to be £46 billion higher. Economically, uh, you know, my argument is he should change the plan on spending and tax. And you know that we never liked um, the VAT as a tax rise. Personally, I think raising it this January was a very, very bad timing, and that's partly reflecting on what we now see in retail sales and, and more widely. So therefore, if he's going to do something now, even if he won't accept the advice on spending or the bank bonus tax, he should look at tax rates, and he should say, what can I do now to get the economy moving quickly? And he's got to choose the measure which has the quickest impact. The thing about VAT is, he can reverse it from 20 down to 17.5%, he can do it by the end of the day. Can do it immediately and it has an immediate impact on people's purchasing power or the bottom line of businesses. It's not like an income tax or national insurance rebate which arrives in a cheque or in your pay packet at the end of the month and you then have to make a decision as to whether you spend it or save it. It's not like a spending programme which we all know takes time to establish. It happens immediately. The argument against it is sometimes but people don't see it. You know, George Osborne and David Cameron's argument against Alistair Darling's VAT cut was nobody will notice it, and therefore it won't make any difference. Now, I think actually quite a lot of people do notice whether VAT goes up and down. They may not. Um, but that isn't the point. The point is, whether you notice it or not, at the end of the month, or at the end of your shopping trip, there is more money in your pocket because of the VAT cut, which you then have an immediate decision about how to spend. Even if companies didn't pass it all on, it's there in their bottom line. They can make decisions then about what other prices they cut or jobs. If you want to have... The reason why Alistair Darling did VAT um, two, three years ago was because it was immediate and it was the best, quickest way. I think the evidence is getting pretty clear. George Osborne needs to do something quickly. If he wants to do something quickly which will work, he should cut VAT. And I think, personally, um, that is the easiest thing for him, given his other, his other commitments, to, um, to do. It's not what I would do. I would do a range of things, of that, which that would be one. But um, he could do that now. OK, let's uh, wind. Could, could we begin with, uh, say, a mini, mini press conference with some uh, questions from journalists? Uh, Laura. And then we're going to widen out. We've got plenty of time. Laura. Um, Laura Koonsberg from the BBC. If you're serious about filling in the black hole, how can you possibly credibly be arguing to cut taxes at this time? Okay, I'll, I'll repeat it. If you're serious about filling in the black hole, how can you be credibly asking for uh, tax cuts now? And, and, can I ask just, and, and, and why would a, a cut in VAT, which would take one pence off the price of a Mars bar, 
actually get the economy going when the evidence from when you did this before is decidedly mixed about whether or not it had a positive or a negative impact? Well, the, the evidence from a few years ago from the IFS was it was an effective stimulus. But just look at the facts. The fact was the economy grew more quickly than people expected. Unemployment came down faster than people expected. And um, borrowing came in £20 billion lower than people expected. So the evidence was that stimulus at that point worked. I have no argument about the importance of getting the deficit down. Of course we've got to get the deficit down. But as I said, a credible plan has got to work. And if there is fewer people working, more people unemployed and not paying tax, if people aren't spending or investing, that makes it harder to get the deficit down. A credible plan has got to work. This plan at the moment isn't working. And people say, well, what's the difference? What does Labour mean by slowing the pace of deficit reduction? George Osborne can slow it immediately by um, that VAT cut as an emergency tax cut now. It boosts purchasing power. We know that from our experience. In my view, that is a better way to get the deficit down, and his plan isn't working. That's the, um, the argument. Okay. Uh, uh, Michael Savage, Times. We'll just carry on with this mini press conference for five minutes, then we'll widen it out. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and I just wanted to ask you, uh, Rightly or wrongly in the public's mind, there seems to be um, some loss in faith of Labour's ability to manage the economy. Uh, David Miliband had the idea of creating a cross-party commission to keep an eye on public spending headed by Alistair Darling. Just wondered if you would support that idea or if you had any ideas for a similar mechanism to sort of restore public faith in Labour's economic management. There is, there is no doubt that Labour's got work to do through this Parliament to restore our credibility. And, um, and, and, and that's important work. Um, what is also the case is that sort of trust in the direction George Osborne is taking the economy has been falling very sharply since the autumn. And I think an important part of establishing our credibility is setting out clearly a better, fairer, more sensible alternative than the vicious circle our economy is getting into at the moment. Um, David, um, you know, I read from The Guardian, had a speech. It was a speech which was never given. Um, it was a speech which was written for that time. Um, I have to say, the commitment to deficit reduction, the, um, the sticking with Alistair's um, plan as he set out, those things were all in the conference speech I did give at the Labour Party conference last September. We as an opposition have got to make sure that we do things properly uh, in, in setting out our fiscal alternative. And I'm not going to do that, to be honest, quickly and in a rapid way at the beginning of a parliament. But if you actually remember the last time we were in opposition, we laid the foundations very clearly for tough fiscal rules and for independence of the Bank of England and then for um, sticking to spending plans for the Conservatives. Announcements which started in 1995, three years into the Parliament. Um, that was when the fiscal rules and the Bank Independence was first uh, set out. Um, what we thought was a year before the general election, and um, although John Major then went into the fifth year, the spending plans for two years, the freeze, happened in January um, of 1997, just a few months before the general election. So the right thing for an opposition to do is to think this out. And um, I don't personally think the right thing for me to do is to um, devolve that to a cross-party commission. If George Osborne wants to um, put the issue of, of Plan B to a cross-party commission, then I'll be on it. Yeah. Hi, Raphael Baird, New Statesman. Um, I noticed you said that, um, of course, we didn't spend all the money wisely. Um, I was wondering if you could sort of flesh out a little bit which bits of it you thought weren't wisely spent, 
Um, and, what, and just a quick other question. How much confidence do you have in the Office for Budget Responsibility to actually be an independent arbiter of the fiscal strategy um, when they're using all the old Treasury models? Well, I think the... Um um, we've supported the, uh, the Office of Budget Responsibility in the debates in, in, in Parliament. Um, but the important thing is that the Office of Budget Responsibility does not set the fiscal strategy. What it does is it does a forecast. And, um, and you know, there are pros and cons for independence in forecasting. I think you know, given where we are, fine. The fiscal strategy is a decision of the Chancellor of the Exchequer. The monetary policy strategy is set by the Independent Bank of England. The fiscal policy strategy is not set by the OBR. It's set by the Chancellor. It's his decision, and it's his, and it's his discretion to, um, to, to spend, um, you know, to, to, to do things differently. In terms of spending, well, we are managing a close to £400 billion spending programme. And there are lots and lots of examples of things which we did, which um, we didn't get right. Of course there are. That's true for every government. Um, I'll give you one. Um, we reorganised and then reorganised again primary care trusts in 2003, 4, 5, 6 and 7. And I think probably that was destabilising and wasteful. And um, it's happening again now. So um, that's a very, very good example of, um, of, of, of waste in, in spending, which was done mistakenly. I can give you um, more, of course. I'm sure that there were things which, um, in, in my department which we didn't get it right. And obviously, not getting bank regulation right was... Um, was, um, was wasteful um, as well and very damaging uh, for people. My argument, though, is that every government um, makes some decisions which they don't get right. We've seen quite a lot of them in recent uh, weeks. I think that the, what's happening to youth unemployment is a massive waste of talent and potential, as well as um, damaging for our chances of getting the deficit down. But the charge that Labour's profligacy and waste on spending caused the deficit or caused the crisis. It's just not true. And, you know, um, it's important that I point that out because um, there are some people who will um, think if you say black is white enough times, people will believe you. Can I just ask out of interest, you, you know your previous answer where you outlined how you delivered announcements in the build-up to the 97 election when you were last in opposition. Do you envisage following that kind of timetable again? So when people sometimes ask you, well, now, what are your policies for the next election? The reality is that you don't plan to announce them, say, about six months before. Is that the example you gave? I think the, um, there, are, there are different ways government's done it in the past. I think uh, you know, the not making any announcements at all until the day of the election and hoping that you get away with it is, um, is, is, um, doesn't work. I mean, that was the David Cameron, George Osborne strategy. And in the end, it didn't work. They didn't get a majority. Um, we in the past have tried the strategy of making a lot of detailed policy commitments in the first half of the parliament. The problem is you then spend the second half of the parliament in opposition trying to get out of the detailed policy commitments you made in the first parliament. The truthful reason why we had a shadow budget in 1992, I think, why Labour had a shadow budget, wasn't because that was our platform for jobs and growth for the election, it was because we had to explain how we were going to pay for some of the things which had been committed to two or three years ago. So you've got to make sure in opposition, you think things through, you've talked widely, and that when you make announcements, they are genuinely announcements which you want to have in your manifesto. And I think in that period up to 97, you know, some, if you look at the pledges and they're up to 97, some of them were um, you know, detailed late. There were some though, the windfall tax on the privatised utilities to pay for um, the New Deal Youth Jobs Programme was first announced in the autumn of 1993. Um, and was our policy for three or four years. So there is a balance to be 
that are struck here, but I don't think a sensible opposition tries to anticipate where the world will be in four years' time and sets out detailed commitments on tax and spending. Um, I don't think that, that's wise or sensible, and I don't think that's actually the way to um, get credibility. Okay, let's widen out sort of journalists and everyone else now. Let, let's go up, up on the about Yeah, the, George the, Marcus, the guy, yeah, we'll get, we'll get we'll ask other journalists, but just people from the balcony as well are up. Miss Shadow Chancellor, given that only this year you were taken to court um, by, because you failed to pay the rent on your constituency office, um, uh, and you can't seem to manage your own personal finances, why should we trust you on the economy? Okay, let's, uh, I, I, I promise you'll get an answer, but because, the, let, while we're up focusing on the balcony, I'm going to get, uh, take some more, yeah, the, the guy, uh, don't worry, you'll get an answer, I promise you, but I just want to make sure as many, we get as many questions in before we come back down again, yeah. Uh, regarding the evidence, isn't the problem that the countries you cited today are growing faster than US and Germany in particular are in fact cutting their deficits at a faster rate this year? And there's just not the evidence, contemporary or historic, considering we have this deficit at this stage of the cycle. Okay, I promise you'll get one on that as well. One more, yeah, the guy at the, at the, back, at the yes. back of the balcony. This, this is your second major uh, lecture on economic policy, for which I thank you. Um, I want to ask a big long-run question rather than about current policy. Uh, as you are one of the authors of the famous Silver Book, uh, which is uh, the framework for monetary and fiscal policy in the UK from the late 1990s to about 2008 was the framework, what would be your recommendations for a new framework post-crisis, once you've got the deficit down and all the rest? What should be the framework for stability? Okay, could you answer this quickly? Your personal finances are a mess. Why should we trust you to run right. the country? The, um, the, uh, the issue the first gentleman raised is not about my personal finances at all. It's all about um, protecting taxpayers' money, um, the money which, which MPs use for, um, to manage their offices. When I moved out of an office um, a year ago, um, when my constituency changed, the landlord suddenly, out of the blue, a few months later wrote a letter demanding a whole series of um, sums be paid from the taxpayer, from the House of Commons to him, and I've said um, that I wouldn't do that because I thought it was unjustified. There, was, there were some areas where um, he had a point. Um, the lease said that we should have redecorated. We're going to pay for that. In other areas, um, he made ridiculous demands, and uh, I'm not going to let the taxpayer or the House of Commons authorities down by, um, by not fighting those kind of things. If people make untrue claims, then in the end, you have to sort them out um, in the small claims court. But, um, you know, uh, I have no problem at all about um, making sure that I stand for prudence and, and responsible spending okay. when it comes to the taxpayer. Uh, other companies. The, um, <laughs> other, um, other countries. Other countries. Well, fast and growing. If you take the, the American debate, um, in America, I think that America is taking a sensible and balanced approach to, you know, or has been, to getting the economy moving before they reduce the deficit. But the truth in America, if you remember my three tests for credibility, having a clear plan, political support for it, and then it's got to work. The problem in America at the moment is there was a big debate in Congress about, about what plan to have, and there is clearly absolutely no political support at the moment, a consensus about the way forward in the Congress, and that is part of the difficulty. Obviously in Greece as well, we see a now a debate about whether there is political support for the way um, forward. Uh, in terms of, and, and so those things are not really about the pace of deficit reduction, it's about whether to, it's possible to get the political support to take the measures and the steps. The fact is that we have one of the fastest deficit reduction plans over uh, five years, the fastest spending cuts and deficit reduction of any major economy, and our economy has had one of the worst performances in the last 
six or nine months of any major economy. So I'm afraid the evidence so far, I think, is on my side of the, um, the argument. Finally, um, the big reforms we put in place and where do we go? I think Bank of England independence has been, and not joining the euro but sticking with Bank of England independence, has been absolutely proved by the test, the test of time. If you think of the debates in the last few months about inflation's higher, do mortgage rates need to go up, the exchange rate has fallen. If politicians had been making those decisions in the last few months, it would have been deeply destabilising and hard. An independent Bank of England has actually been able to, I think, take the right course of um, taking a long-term view and not raising uh, interest rates. That would have been very hard without banker independence. So I think that is absolutely there. and It's not really being touched. In terms of fiscal policy, well, we met our fiscal rules throughout the entire period, and then there was a financial crisis. And the financial crisis, obviously, for every country, meant deficits went up. What has George Osborne decided to do? He's decided to make a commitment to ensure that um, current spending, the budget based on current spending, the structural deficit, is, um, is, 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 uh, is, is reduced by 2015, and that debt is falling. Well, our two fiscal rules were to meet the golden rule, which is that current spending over the cycle would be balanced by tax um, revenues and that the national debt would be falling. So, in a way, although this fiscal regime is different, it has similarities, big similarities to what we uh, did, the OBR is a sensible change, which is fully consistent with, for example, our decision to make the statistics organisation uh, independent. And the bank regulation changes, well, we've still got to see what the detail is. I have to say the one area where I'm personally concerned is um, the changes being announced today around the structure of regulation. We need to look at this much, much harder than we have so far, because what was previously a tripartite system with two deputy governors of the Bank of England is about to become a quartet system with three deputy governors of the uh, Bank of England. It's not at all clear to me this is going to be simpler. My fear it could be more complex. I'm not sure it will lead to greater accountability. It may lead to less accountability. And there's a big question in a crisis is there a clear memorandum of understanding to establish who would take what decisions on the basis of what advice? There's absolutely no clarity on that at all. So look, we'll look at this, and I'm not going to post things come what may, but I'm concerned at the moment that this looks like, um, like changes in institutions simply for the sake of changes to fit a political narrative. The tripartite system was the cause of the problem, which is obviously nonsense, because other countries had crises whether they had a tripartite system uh, or not. Okay. If you blight institutions during that you know, the two years while you go through massive structural change, it's not always the wisest thing to do. Right. Okay, thanks a lot. Um, we'll return to the mini press conference then. I promise I'm going to take questions from over there. Uh, George Parker, Financial Times, if you get the mic, he's... he's that's it. Uh, yeah, Ed, can I ask about the um, politics of this speech? You mentioned earlier on that you uh, needed to restore your credibility, and the polls seem to suggest that one of the problems you have is that people think you aren't prepared to make tough decisions and face up to difficult choices on the deficit. Um, you gave a detailed and cogent speech on the economy, but I can guarantee the headlines that will come out of this will be Ed Ball's calls for tax cuts uh, to help sort out the deficit. Um, how does that address your central problem of economic credibility? And even if the economics are right, aren't the politics completely wrong? I think that the, um, the, the, the public um, would say the following things. Firstly, we've got to get the deficit down. I totally agree. Secondly, they say, we'll have to make tough decisions to get the deficit down. I totally agree. They'd say, it's going to be painful, we know that, and, that, and that's true. But they also say, 
that they're worried at the moment, which is why confidence is down and people aren't spending. They're worried that, um, that they're not going to have their job, that the child won't be able to go to university or get a job when they leave school. They're worried that things are going to get tougher for them or their friends working, not just in the public sector, but on private sector contracts in the, in the public sector. And they're worried that we're going to get into a vicious circle where actually things go wrong. And my argument is they're right to worry, because that kind of vicious circle where well, you end up with slower growth and fewer people working, actually makes it harder to get the deficit down. And therefore, we've got to set out to the public an alternative. And an alternative means a more balanced approach to deficit reduction, which means reducing it more slowly, but getting it down in a way which works. What do you mean getting it down in a more steady way? But it means that you don't raise the tax, which has the biggest immediate impact on people's spending power at just the moment when confidence is fragile and the economy is slowing down. I think the timing of the VAT rise this January is very, very uh, risky and dangerous, and we're seeing that now in the figures, and therefore the right thing to do... Look, I don't like the VAT rise at all. I think that's the right tax to raise, because it hits the poorest and pensioners. However, even if you think it's the right tax to raise, it was the wrong time, it's going to make it harder to get the deficit down, and that's why George Osborne should postpone it to get the economy moving. Now, if the test for credibility is you've got to be tougher and say, I'm going to have even more pain, then, you know, <clears throat> that isn't the test I'm trying to pass. The test I want to pass is having a plan which works. And the reason why George Osborne's got a problem with his credibility <clears throat> isn't because he's talking tough or not tough enough. Chancellors always talk tough. The reason why he's got a problem with his credibility is because of people who are increasingly thinking it's not working. And, you know, so this argument is going to be won and fought out in the... Um, weeks and months to, um, to come. It's not going to be decided today. Okay. Let's get some uh, more questions. Uh, yeah, the guy there. I've got a could, could you keep it short if it's a two-part question? Because I'm very short, a lot of hands. Two-part questions on the but very short. Uh, firstly, RBS, state-owned bank, uh, pay no dividends to the shareholders, share price stays the same, Hestergate £7.7 .7 million a year. What would he do about that? Point one. Point two, I want to thank him for protecting my savings a couple of years ago um, from the banking crisis, and I thought Labour's crisis management was brilliant, but how can we stop that happening again without being the too-big-to-fail scenario from the banks who are blackmailing us? Thank okay, you. if we could take a, a few more, just try and get some... Yeah. Yes, I could usefully follow, follow that up, because... I've listened to your political tactics and find a lot of that acceptable. But where's the strategy? Where's Labour's strategy on the big issues like ensuring there's no more credit crunch to come and dealing with our huge uh, inequalities? Are you going to do anything with the dysfunctional taxation system, uh, reducing taxes on production and, 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 and looking at annual uh, land value? Okay, thank you very much. Let's just um, move it move it around here. Uh, okay, yeah, in in the middle here. Uh, I don't. Yeah. Um, you mentioned youth unemployment at one point. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware. Well, I'm sure you are. Uh, the apprentice minimum wage rate is two pound fifty. Obviously, that that is provides a good incentive for people to employ young people. But do you think that provides the right in, uh, incentive for, say, myself? I can earn twice as much doing what is full minimum wage in a, in a different job. What incentive is there for young people to work for half what they would be paid 
in a standard job on, on an apprentice minimum wage. Okay, in the hope that we can get another round in, could you keep sure, it really sure. quite, okay. sort of avoiding a banking crisis and credit crunch, perhaps you could conflate those and then... There is no doubt, age 16, any school leaver will always be immediately better off by going to a full-time job without any training. Of course they will. But the question you've got to decide is, what's your long-term plan? The reason why people stay on at school till they're 18 is because they want to invest in their education. We used to have EMAs to make that easier. Um, the reason why people go to university is because they want to invest even more. And the reason for going on an apprenticeship is to get you a skill and an earning power which will make you better off through your life. And so therefore there is always a trade-off. And you know, we talked about tough decisions. One of the things I always argued for was making sure that the way our approach to youth employment and youth apprentices didn't end up making it so expensive for employers that they didn't offer the jobs in the apprenticeship. So there's a balance to be struck, but you've got to take a long-term view. The problem is, if you're going to pay £9,000 a year to go to university, I'm afraid too many young people will say that's a step too far for me. They certainly will in my constituency. So those calculations are um, very uh, important. The um, gentleman here, first of all, um, we need to make sure this doesn't happen again. As I said, I am... Um, sceptical that the institutional changes make a huge amount of difference. I think it's good to have a fiscal policy, um, a, a financial policy committee in the Bank of England looking at these issues. But let's be clear, we had a deputy governor for macro, um, for macro prudential stability from 1997 when we reformed the Bank of England. And having that focus at that time and people looking at these things regularly still didn't spot the problems. But you can always try and do better. And we'll need to look at the details of the Vickers um, Commission uh, report, but I think that the ring fence, if you can make it tough, is the right approach. On pay, though, look, this is really hard for any country to solve alone um, because people are mobile and you've got to look at ways in which you can have transparency um, and corporate governance changes which were agreed internationally. We, then, when we were in government, we legislated to have proper transparency on pay at the top. Um, and the government didn't uh, implement it. Even in the Merlin report, we now say the salaries of any public sector workers over £59,000 should be published, but not people earning more than a million pounds in banks which we own. And I don't really understand the, um, that uh, distinction. And I've said, look, in the meantime, while you're sorting out some of those longer-term reforms, you should do the bank bonus tax for second year and use the money for youth jobs. Why are we giving the banks a tax cut this year? But these longer-term things, you know, they're important for us to get onto. The big questions at the next election are going to be um, where will the future jobs come from? How can you have um, finance and capital markets in Britain which serve the long-term interests of, um, of, of our economy rather than just short-term interests? How do you make sure that in this globalising world where skills are the premium, people without skills don't have you know, an impossible time making ends meet? Those are issues which we tried to face up to in the past decade. We've got work to do on those things. And I'm not going to sort of out of the blue um, say I've got the answers now because we haven't got all the answers. We understand the questions and we're working on the answers. Of course we are. But there is an immediate question today which is about George Osborne's choice. And um, that will make a big difference to those long-term issues. So that's why I'm sort of focusing on that first. Okay, we've got time for a couple more questions. You'll go at the back side of sign up a lot. <clears throat> Why, uh, why do you have so much difficulty acknowledging uh, that, that Labour's spending policies, they certainly didn't cause the financial crisis, but they exacerbated it. And can't you agree with those very distinguished chaps, uh, your successors as FT leader writers, who are actually continually, almost on a daily basis, accusing the last government of having far too loose a grip on spending? 
Okay, very interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I think we better make this the last. In, in the middle uh, over here. Um, yes. J just ask it, don't worry. I think it's on. From May 2010 through for the next six months, every single minister was repeating a mantra that the, con the economy was a complete basket case and that Labour was responsible. Now, there was a kind of banker's strike of not lending enough money to businesses that need, needed money. But the cuts that the government has been putting through, I suspect, were less significant in the nil growth in the last six months or so than the destruction of confidence in the economy that ministers from the Prime Minister downwards were putting across. Do you agree that actually the ministers are culpable in causing the zero growth of the last few months? Okay. I've got a feeling I know the answer to that one. Um, <laughs> As I said. So uh, 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 the first one about, you know, the FT leader writers, there are probably some in the shadow cabinet who share that view as well, I don't know. But um, I think the, um, every government, especially if you're in, period, in office for a period, has to continually been trying to bear down on efficiency and spending. And as technology changes, there's always new opportunities. And the Gershom Review back in 2003-04 was all about trying to be more efficient in our use of spending, release resources. I think we lost um, about 80,000 posts uh, at that time. Um, but I'm, as I said, I gave the PCT's example, I could give you others. Of course we didn't get everything right, but the, the argument that excessive public spending exacerbated the crisis or caused the crisis, I don't see the evidence for that at all. The fact is that consistently from 97 on, we were trying to get the national debt down in order that we were in a stronger position if things um, came along to cause us a difficulty. Um, when we spent more money on the NHS, we raised the national insurance tax um, for that. There's always been an ideological debate, because some people say, if only you had a smaller state, less taxes and less spending, our economy would be stronger. Um, there are alternative people who say, in 1997, if you had a, a bad hip, you waited 18 months, and at the end of the Labour's period in office, office you were waiting nine weeks, maximum of 18 weeks. That's a massive change. And so I refused to sort of jump to that ideological tune. We didn't get things right in bank regulation, but we, we, it was not the case that excessive labour spending caused or exacerbated the crisis. I have a lot of respect for the um, FT, but of course in 1990, 91 and 92, the FT, of which I was a leader writer, was, always, was also saying join the ERM. So, um, you know, they don't get everything right, they don't get everything right um, uh, either. Point down here, I think, well, there, there, there is no, it was, I had an interesting discussion on the BBC a few months ago with somebody who said, you can't blame the spending cuts, um, you know, as the cause for the fall in um, output, because they've not really started. But of course, people are more rational than that, and they look ahead. And if they know there's difficult times coming, then of course they start to plan. And the reality was, I don't know whether it was the impending rise in VAT, or the fastest spending cuts in our post-war history, or ministers talking down the, um, the economy in a, in a crude way. But whatever it was, we had the biggest fall in consumer confidence for 20 years, and we're paying a price for that. There's now a debate 
George raised it earlier about you know, our credibility and what the way forward is. There are some people who say to me, you've got to spend more time defending the past and taking on that argument that it was all Labour's fault. There's other people who say, you've got to spend more time admitting you didn't get everything right because you'll only be credible if you admit your mistakes. I mean, it's not true that Labour spending caused the crisis. But imagine me saying, yes, we spent money irresponsibly, but because I've admitted it, could you trust me now? It doesn't make sense. The reality, though, is that isn't where the public are. Look, the public think that it was a recession caused by banking irresponsibility, but they do think that um, not every pound was spent wisely. But they're not really interested in a debate about who was right between me and George Osborne in 2005. You know, when I say George Osborne matched my spending plans in 2000, the, 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 um, the Labour spending plans in 2006, 7, and 8, then, um, then, then you know, he, was, he, was, he was agreeing with our view that spending was tough. Nobody cares. What people are worried about is their jobs now and they're squeezing their living standards and whether mortgages are going to go up and whether their kids can afford to go to university and whether this squeeze is going to carry on for a very long time. That's what they're worried about. And I think, myself, rather than having a debate about the past good, the past bad, we should focus on where the country is going, what kind of future we're going to have, and whether George Osborne is making the right or the wrong choices. And so my speech is about, you know, I'm, I'm trying to give him good advice. He doesn't need, <laughs> honestly, I am. He doesn't, need, he doesn't need to do this. We're not in the ERM. If you're not in the ERM, why ever would you want to repeat that all over again? Great. Well, look, Ed Balls, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you all of you. And thank you, the LSE, for hosting the event.